Hey, I want to welcome everyone to uh, Cancer Center Grand Rounds. Um, and uh, the focus today is a little bit different than uh, our typical um, uh, topic, but it's one that is uh, incredibly important, um, really for anyone interested in healthcare going forward, but especially for uh, me and people like me who have responsibilities around um, uh, actually managing the healthcare enterprise. Um, Wes Chapman's a longtime friend of mine. Uh, his uh, real background is in all things business related. And I first knew Wes when he was um, running a uh, company um, uh, that actually had a medical um, set of responsibilities and twists. But the thing that impressed me so was their use of um, uh, standardized uh, procedures um, to uh, decrease uh, mistakes and to enhance uh, the value to their customers. And uh, as time went on, Wes got more and more interested in the issues around um, value in uh, the delivery of cancer care. And um, I hope that I was one of the influences to get him interested in cancer. And uh, he has played a big role in getting me interested in um, uh, quality. And in fact, it was Wes that introduced us to Corning, and Corning that uh, introduced um, really uh, quality care to the cancer center and to some more limited extent to, uh, to Dartmouth. And uh, Wes is going to talk a little bit about um, uh, specialty ACOs, Accountable Care Organizations, and Cancer ACOs, and uh, his experience now as a uh, leader in uh, Tennessee Oncology, which is a private um, oncology company uh, that uh, provides oncology services. And I think, Wes, you'll describe that. Right. Um, but this is a um, uh, big, high-quality, um, complex operation, um, not at all dissimilar from many of the challenges we have, um, and uh, some of the interfaces, for instance, between medical oncology and surgery and radiation are very similar to um, those that we see when we go out into the region. And so um, without further ado, I will let um, Wes uh, share with you some of his experiences. Wes, thanks. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for having me. I hope I can keep everybody awake through uh, the lunch hour. Uh, a little bit about, uh, I have, I'm not selling anything today here. Uh, absolutely nothing I talk about do I have any financial interest in or have for sale. Uh, any uh, talk in this part of the country uh, about oncology should start with something from Dr. Emanuel. Uh, this was what he had to say at the ASCO annual meeting this year. Uh, I'm frequently criticized by my younger colleagues for giving uh, text-dense presentations. I do that for a reason, that the presentation gets left behind, and hopefully I don't. That means that people who get it later can read it, hopefully understand it. So I won't read the presentation, but the presentations are pretty dense. They'll be available later on. Who is this Tennessee Oncology? It's a private practice. It's a big private practice. It's the second largest oncology practice in the United States. 
We have 85 plus physicians, 25 plus uh, locations. We've got 40% market share in the state of Tennessee and over 70% in our service area. Based out of Nashville, it's a three hospital market, three hospital system market. HCA is based there, founded there. So HCA is one of the uh, large participants. Ascension has a big office, uh, group of facilities there in Vanderbilt. Uh, we are affiliated with HCA and we're affiliated with Ascension. Uh, Vanderbilt operates independently. We have uh, long-standing 100% referral relationships with HCA and Ascension. And a very large clinical trial practice uh, through Sarah Cannon. Sarah Cannon uh, is HCA's uh, clinical trial arm. We have over 100 uh, pharma-based clinical trials. Uh, we're the second largest phase one unit in the United States. Our practice is COPE certified. We run everything on a big uh, ARIA uh, EMR through Varian, standardized billing through GE Centricity, and we participate in one uh, ACL, which is through its mission point. It's uh, the Ascension ACL. This was a slide that I was talking at a show in Chicago last year, and this was a slide that my boss put up, and it's his view of where Tennessee Ecology was at the time. It was a pinata, and all of the kids were trying to smack it to get the goodies out. State government, pharma, federal government, commercial payers. This man was under attack. And I said, when I talked to him, I said, you know, maybe I can help. We can fix something here. It was a self-image founded in harsh reality. Uh, over the last 10 years or so, there's been a gigantic shift from the delivery of medical oncology care from uh, the community uh, to hospital-based systems. This has been caused by a couple of different things. Uh, payment differential and 340B being the two biggest ones. Site of service payment differential, it's a big deal. Uh, it was one of the principal reasons, as an example here, that the Hitchcock Clinic was merged in with the hospital. Uh, it changed uh, not how the care was delivered or where the care was delivered, but it certainly paid what amount was paid for that care that was being delivered. Uh, this is what's happened to uh, the community oncology business in the last uh, six years, and it's clear why uh, my boss, Dr. Jeff Patton, was feeling like a pinata. Hospitals been acquiring physician practices. And this is something which, uh, wearing slightly different hats, I've had uh, a part of. And to put in perspective, the 340B is the principal driver here. Everybody knows what 340B is and does before I make that valiant assumption. I think you should explain it just in a second. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> 340B is part of a federal program which was started out uh, through the Indian Health Service and for uh, critical access hospitals to reduce the price of uh, certain drugs available through an outpatient setting. The program was expanded basically to all Medicaid recipient hospitals. And what it's done is it's dropped the effective price of uh, outpatient-based drugs by 40 to 60%. Now what that does in oncology, where the cost of the pharmaceuticals are so enormous, dramatically changes the economics, that if you happen to be running a 340B site, 
Uh, I had one friend who sold the practice to a hospital, and imagine it was a $100 million practice. Uh, their margins went up by $20 million the day they sold the practice. It's breathtaking, really. And it caused uh, a fair amount of budgetary uh, havoc within the oncology care delivery community. Uh, oncology care costs have been going up precipitously, aging of the population, more services, more expensive therapeutics. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's driving it, um, but it's going up at rough, roughly twice the pace of underlying medical uh, inflation. Not all the changes are adverse. The three critical policy shifts underway. Uh, reference pricing, it was uh, actually passed on a Sunday this year, and you know any piece of uh, legislative or executive order that happens on a Sunday is never good news. Uh, this particular one said that uh, health plans, private health plans, had the ability to price a service throughout a state at a price and force the patient to do a balanced billing, which heretofore had been illegal. This is a very big deal. Uh, it's a very big deal for us at Tennessee Oncology <coughs> because it opens up that Vanderbilt market to us. It's our expectation that prospectively next year, patients who are faced with much higher co-pays will be looking for cheaper solutions. 340B is under attack for a variety of reasons. Uh, interestingly, Genentech has undertaken uh, sort of what I'll call a personal or corporate vendetta against it. And CMS has made uh, a variety of programs uh, open and available, uh, which we are participating in all three. Uh, this was another slide that uh, my boss had put in. It was aspirational rather than planning at the time. He wanted to change, he wasn't sure what he wanted to do about it. None of these types of uh, presentations are complete without a value slide or two. I won't spend a lot of time on them. You guys have probably forgotten more about this than I know. But I will say that what I have focused on is process control and the difference between a special cause and common cause variation in the design and implementations of the systems that we've put in at Tennessee Oncology. It's a big deal. If I can take common cause variation out of a system, I can make things a lot better. Special cause is a different deal. Uh, again, process control uh, being a lot of my background and a look at what uh, governments are doing and private sector about cost. Our focus at Tennessee Oncology has been on the commercial health plans. There isn't much that we can innovate with CMS, and we certainly can't innovate anything with CMS that CMS doesn't want to innovate about. But we can innovate a lot with commercial health plans. And one of the things that happens in the state of Tennessee, to my surprise and delight, is it is one of the most aggressively innovative uh, healthcare markets on planet Earth. I spent a bunch of time with our healthcare plans talking to these guys and saying, what's going on? How are you doing and why don't we have more value-based care situations with you guys? They're mad. They feel that the regimens are controlled by the MDs. They don't have any control over regimens. They feel that the formularies are controlled by the FDA and the practices. 
The utilization management solutions they don't like and they pay a lot of money for them. Everybody's familiar with utilization management. It's a big deal in the private practice world. Uh, folks like Med Solutions. When we want to get a scan of somebody, when we want to give an expensive drug to somebody, we have to pick up the phone and call Med Solutions. And Med Solutions gets back to us when they see fit with the answer they see fit. And historically, this has been bad, and it's something which I'll show you is going to get worse if we don't get in front of this. Uh, patient management is an issue that typically wasn't being delivered. Uh, the payers had an expectation that they were going to see some patient management. They were getting none of it. And they were unhappy about it. And transparency. There were no plans and no audits. Remember, no plans of care and no audits. So they had no idea what was happening to these patients, why it was being done, or was it being done according to plan. Bad. We had the pinata self-image. This was the payer self-image, a painful loss of control. Uh, the reporting requirements, they have their own reporting requirements. They depend on what we do, and they depend on our information flows, and we weren't giving it to them. There had been a unique lack of interest in uh, our payer environment to responding to value-based models or savings models or ACOs. They felt that our uh, oncologists controlled the hearts and minds, and there was no auditability. I'll spend just a minute on this. What were we looking at to demonstrate value? Well, payment reforms, narrow health plans. It's a big deal in our market. Is that a big deal here? About to be. Yeah. And if it hasn't been yet, understand that if someone freezes you out of that plan, you're out of business. And it's, it's the future. You can't get frozen out. Uh, the other thing is cost-sensitive patients. You know, this uh, effectively balanced billing is going to make patients a lot more cost-sensitive. This was kind of our vision of cost reduction and quality improvement. The two uh, blessedly seem to go in the same direction and respond to the same factors. It's important to note in any model of this type whose ox is getting gored. When you move to bundles, everybody know what a bundle is in oncology? Everybody raise your hand if you know. Okay. Uh, basically, it says for this disease state, we're going to provide this therapy for this patient over the course of this line of therapy, and we're going to get paid this amount for it. From the provider's perspective, it's okay, because you know what you're going to get paid up front. The payer can plan, and there is good control over process. The bad news is you're actually being responsive to the pathways and bundles that are required by the payer. The target there is pharma. Uh, you're looking to eliminate outlier uh, utilization of drugs, which may be uh, outside uh, the band of recognized practice. Uh, and candidly, I put in bundles for folks which have been enormously successful financially. Because when you think about it, if you have a little bit of drug utilization of very expensive drugs, which are off pathway, and you eliminate it, and it's elevated your entire cost by 20%, if you bring that down, the payers are always willing to split the difference with you. 
and so you're getting paid half of the difference of 20% or 10% that has no cost associated with it whatsoever, no cost for delivery, no cost for drugs. So bundles are a very good way for an early entry into uh, a value-based pricing model. Uh, Patient-centered medical home, uh, this is really uh, an aggressive uh, method that we've undertaken, I'll get more into it in a minute, which uh, is really targeting hospital-based revenue. Uh, and interestingly, in our market, it's being supported by our hospital partners. They want to move into an ACO because they don't want to just lose revenue. But uh, it typically is regarded as better ca patient care, and I'll get to that in a minute. The imperative is to match cost with revenues. I'll show you in a minute one of the best practices in America, one of the guys who's done, in my opinion, the finest job in uh, patient care delivery, a uh, doc named John Sprandio down in outside Philly. Done a brilliant job in patient-centered medical home design. Forgot to get paid for it and almost went broke. This today's circle is where we're at at uh, Tennessee Oncology today. Tennessee Oncology is just starting this March. Uh, we're getting the practices lined up. We're getting uh, pathways put in. We're getting patient management systems put in. Who's doing this? Everybody. If it hasn't gotten here yet, just wait a minute. It will. It's just like the weather in New England. If you don't like it, wait a minute. Uh, you will be seeing uh, these plans on your doorstep by all the major players uh, in the very near future. When I started this, I went in and I said to Dr. Patton, I said, look, let's do a little SWOT analysis here and take a look at our problem. And I wanted to share this with you folks because it's always interesting to understand somebody else's problems. You know, we spend so much time focusing on our own problems. Somebody else's problems, you can kind of maybe empathize with it. Strengths, we had a first-rate cancer care delivery. We really did. Uh, we got to know our patients at the community level. Uh, you folks have a lot of that here, your remote outreach, uh, you know, providing cancer care at a lot of the critical access hospitals in the uh, re region, that's good. We had tremendous economies in purchasing and billing. We cut good deals. We buy a lot of therapeutics, and we get great pricing. We have a tremendous referral base. They love us, and we worship them. We have best-in-class systems. We got an appealing venue for physicians. We can offer anything from, you want to live out out back in Tennessee and, and, and treat patients and have that be a life great, or we can give you an academic uh, center with tremendous number of trials, uh, first-rate equipment, uh, best in class. We get a lot of, uh, recruiting for us is easy. Uh, and we're a low-cost provider. That helps a lot. We operate under Vanderbilt's price umbrella. They're always more expensive than we are. Weaknesses, Blue Cross Blue Shield in Tennessee is a pain in the neck. We are a certificate of need state. We'd like to own more uh, radiation therapy centers, but we don't want to spend what it costs to buy them. Uh, we have a locally dominant position, uh, which means we can't grow very much. Medical home was our future. Everybody knew it. Uh, we built a GPO. Uh, my boss built it. It's the largest oncology group purchasing organization is what that 
particular acronym stands for. It allows you to buy drugs even more cheaply. And from our perspective, benchmark. We get a lot of great input. As an example, I was talking to somebody today in terms of uh, acuity uh, design for clinical care delivery. Uh, we found that you can't just figure how many patients are coming and how many <coughs> staff you need because the acuity can change a lot. It can really change your staffing requirements. And a practice in Dayton had done some beautiful work over a five-year period with acuity. And you know we, they just made it available inside the group. It was very, very beneficial for us. Uh, expanded data use, something we really have to do a better job at. Uh, threats, Medicare fiscal woes, nobody's safe. Ongoing 340B, ongoing drug shortages. You guys know that story. Changes to survive and thrive, service line expansion, expanded laboratory, expanded. We opened up a big uh, oral pharma. It's a big business today. Uh, started GPO. We're opening a genetics lab, which is a big opportunity and better for patient care a lot. Uh, continued ge uh, geographic growth, we opened up in Chattanooga, uh, bought that practice two years ago. For all of this uh, that we want to do, pathways, care plans, patient management, and palliation, which are the things that we really focused on today, we need to get paid for it or we'll go broke. First question, once I say that, is, well, do these things actually work? You know, I'm out selling this to people. I'm out selling this to the payers. I'm selling it internally. And these guys say, hey, Wes, is there any evidence that these things actually do anything? You know, I read that maybe the, the medical home isn't doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, United Healthcare just did a five-site study. Uh, three of them were affiliated with the Come Home Project, which was Dr. McEnany's uh, Medicare project. They were paid a fixed fee, uh, and the savings were brilliant. Uh, they saved a tremendous amount. All of it was hospital and uh, imaging utilization. Their drug cost was actually twice what they'd expected. So the savings uh, were actually substantially above the 34%. There's some good evidence, about 15 to 20% savings, uh, kind of on a one-time shot when you move to a pathway system. And Dr. McEnany's uh, Come Home Project talks about $33 million in savings, but in terms too vague to be meaningful to me. Uh, quality. These numbers are Dr. Sprandio's. Uh, his work is breathtaking. This guy has just done a terrific job. He forgot to get paid for it, which was a problem. But I have to tell you, the work that he did was terrific. Uh, I've been up to meet him. We've sent teams of people up there to study what he's been doing. We're incorporating it into what we're doing. Uh, these medical homes have gotten a mixed review, as I've mentioned, and I think everybody knows. These are Sprandio's actual results. Uh, these gray colored slides are from the advisory board. I want to give them credit for it. Uh, you can see he not only, uh, he's had a continuous improvement environment, which is enviable uh, over a multi-year period. As I said, uh, he and his team have done a terrific job. 
here's some more insight into the united healthcare project some of the more detail behind it and if anybody wants these studies there was a kickoff study that dr. lee newcomer published back in eleven i think about what he planned to do and then they just put this out in advance of publication this spring but it was convincing although it was confusing their compensation model in that was single payment they got paid nothing for the drugs they got paid to manage and they got a share of the savings and a lot of my friends were cashing multi-million dollar checks for their practices based on the savings from this study it was extraordinarily effective our conclusions at tennessee oncology regarding the patient-centered medical home they actually seem to work pretty well in taking out process variation they seem to work pretty well in taking out cost they seem to do a good job in patient care improvement palliation is an integral part of it and it's i got to tell you the truth it's not clear to me if the outcomes are better or not i've looked hard through this i've tried to find good evidence i've looked high and low i can see where the processes are better i can see how the costs are lower i can see patients that smile but i can't tell you the outcomes clinically were any better care considerations this is something i kind of founded what we did going back to this ninety nine study and the stuff in italics here is what we did to meet their best design requirements we adopted the ncqa model of patient-centered specialty practice there are two models out there which are worth considering dr. mcinney did not like the ncqa model and started one up with the commission on cancer it's terrific it's very well thought out but it's based with the coc which is surgeon based copy and asco wanted to have their own and they moved in the direction of ncqa and given the nature of our practice we went with the ncqa model candidly other practices that we can considered in detail i've got some more detail about dr sprandio's practice here and dr mcinney's Wilshire and Priority Health in Michigan are other ones worth considering if you're looking at doing this. They're first-rate groups. They've published. They've done a good job. They're smart people, and they've done this for a while. This is where I focused my study candidly. I spent a lot of time with Dr. Sprandio and Dr. McEnany. These are good-sized practices, mid-sized practices. Barbara had done some technology which I thought was pretty interesting and I spent some time getting my arms around I've got some summary facts that I won't spend a lot of time going through the slides on here you can get them and if you're interested spend some time looking at them the one thing I'll say about Dr. Sprandio is he was so far in front of the curve that he had to write his own software and I had a huge bias in what I was doing I said look if I have to write the software we're going to be doing this for years and these guys don't have the patience for this I've got to buy everything that's available and is any good and everything else I'll write and I hope it's not very much a little more about Dr. McEnany and what she did a little bit more on her practice and I think what's worth mentioning 
about what she did was she was very aggressive in patient outreach. She has Saturday clinic hours. She has late hours, which is a really uh, expensive but great patient satisfier. And the operation of her clinic is simply brilliant. I have to tell you, I walked into it, and I looked around the waiting room, and nobody looked sick. There weren't any cancer patients in there. They're full of people. I said, who are these people? They said, they're the families. Cancer patients never wait. They go directly in. They don't wait ever. They don't wait once. That's cool. I got it. We boil it down to four pillars, four things that really mattered that I could count. I'm a simple guy. I can't get many more than four things and remember them. I needed pathways, <clears throat> pathways that were cloud-based, pathways that were maintained by somebody else. When I uh, put this plan first to my boss, he said, well, you know, Wes, we'll do the pathways. I said, really? Are we going to do that? Do you know what that means? Well, no, we'll buy, we'll buy the pathways. And uh, ultimately, we ended up going uh, with uh, V-Oncology. Uh, I think that it hooks directly into our EMR. Uh, it's customizable to practice level, which was important. What they say is, we're not going to agree with 100% of the time. And in terms of metrics for this, 90% attribution and 80% compliance. What does that mean? Attribution. Payers want to know that of their payer pop of their beneficiary population, that nine out of ten of them were attributed to a pathway. And of those, they want to know that 80% uh, actually stuck to the pathway or were changed for another pathway. Uh, we went through all of them. Clear Value Plus from McKesson was a great system, but they were going to take all of our data, and we happened to not want them to do that. Uh, VIA doesn't do that, so we went with VIA. And VIA actually has a great system. Uh, a little bit about, this is a study from Aetna, you know, what do pathways do in terms of uh, people sticking to care plans, not too surprisingly. They get people on care plans and they use them. Current pathway utilization in the United States. I thought you might find this interesting. Who's using pathways and how many? And what type are they using? About 30% of the market today is on some form of pathways. And about 40% plans to use them next year. Uh, put this in perspective. Uh, I'm friends with a bunch of guys in northern Georgia which have a very active and extraordinarily innovative practice. And they have been tagged with uh, pathway systems, independent pathway systems, by six different providers. And they have to go to a different pathway system and enter in their patients. All of the same pathways, mind you, just different interfaces. Uh, so they actually put ball hats on their patients so they know who they're supposed to be dealing with. <laughs> Honest to God. But <clears throat> we'll get over that mess. Uh, there's some things afoot in the market to fix that. Obviously, that's not going to work very well very long. But uh, this is the future. I just put this in here. This is 
the VR Oncology uh, interface, this is what you see at the splash screen. Uh, this is a little bit about an update to a pathway. What they do is they meet monthly teams of uh, 10 docs, five uh, community oncologists, five uh, academic oncologists. Uh, they publish pathways uh, once a quarter. I could tell when we started that that wasn't going to be done by us. Uh, care plans. Care plans were a vital part of what we were doing. You know, when I talked to the payers, they said, when I walk in, I said, you know, we're putting in a pathway system, and we can give you a care plan. They light up. That's terrific. Can we do a shared savings ACO, which is music to my ears, of course, because I get a fee for service for another couple of years plus some upside which basically gives me a chance to transition. Uh, goes to patients, and this is extraordinarily important to us. We were not doing a good job with patient education. That was the truth. And I wasn't happy with it. And I said, we have got to get patients information about their disease state. They really don't care about somebody else's disease state. And when they go into a portal, which is about cancer, like NCCN, and has a 150-page document about breast cancer in it, like a little tiny bit of it's applicable to them. It doesn't help them at all. And uh, VIA actually has a great uh, integration of care plans and patient education and palliation materials built into their pathways. And for our referrals, everyone who is familiar with meaningful use knows that you have to give your referrals uh, complete packages on what, uh, what they're doing for you. And uh, this really took care of it. This is an example of one of the care plans. Uh, this is uh, the type that we would use with a payer. The patient care plans, not too surprising, look very different. Patient management. Uh, this is the uh, third of the four pillars, so I'm blessedly halfway through. <laughs> but uh, patient management was something that uh, I think Dr. McEnany and Dr. Sprandio had done a really good job with triage, and I went out and spent a lot of time trying to understand their triage systems so that we could build one of our own. Uh, and proactive disease management, which Dr. Sprandio did a good job at, and uh, Barbara's not gotten to yet. I think what's important with this is triage first, proactive management later. Uh, it has to integrate with your phone and data systems. And it really needs to be multimodal. You know, we have kicked off a little test project. I like to pilot stuff. And so we're piloting one at Tennessee where we're sending text messages to these patients. And we ask them every day, how you doing? A little, you know, sliding scale. And they report back to us. We got 87% response. Now, these are people that, you know, there's some obvious selection bias there. but. Uh, it's something that we want to have in our patient management system going forward. I won't spend a lot of time on triage because it's a fairly uh, boring subject, but we did do a lot of work. I did a lot of work. This was something that was important to me. How you triage these patients uh, has a lot to do with uh, the quality of the care that they're receiving. It also has a lot to do with the risk that you take on. You're taking a call and you want to make sure that uh, they're getting proper care. We're using some validated tools built into our system. 
This is the Edmonton system uh, uh, assessment system for cancer. Uh, the Ontario tool is actually a little slicker and it's probably what we'll end up using. Uh, in terms of the pathways themselves, I'm a fan of Lippincott uh, for nursing manuals. Uh, I don't know if you folks uh, use Lippincott or not, but I switch all of my hospital clients to Lippincott for policies and procedures because you only have to do it once and you never have to do it again. And I'm doing the same thing with our triage system. Uh, some system design considerations that I will spend a little time on this slide, cloud-based. I'm not going to spend a lot of time putting in uh, hardware and software. It's expensive. And if you don't like it, you can't get rid of it. It really raises the risk on the initial acquisition. I like to pilot stuff and see if it's going to work or not. Has to be built around relational databases. Uh, you know, one of the problems with most of the EMR systems in the world today is they are not built on relational databases. Some of them are built on ancient and venerable file formats like MUMPS. Everyone who has one of those. And they don't work very well. I wanted one uh, that had the best technology. Uh, tiering and work listing are very important. Uh, we don't, didn't have that in our EMR. Uh, Real-time reporting on functionality had to integrate with the phone system. And what we found was on this one, we had just switched to, and for folks who might be thinking about it, we switched to uh, Microsoft's latest Office version. It's got, with Link, it's got terrific integration with your phone system. So if you're thinking about doing such a thing, just think of a system upgrade through Microsoft first. Uh, roles and permissions based and done in iterative phases. Uh, I try not to eat the elephant all at once. Uh, makes for an awful big bite. And uh, we're doing triage first and ending up with a learning system. Predictive analytics. On this one, this is something that I really felt strongly the pairs wanted it. And I, you know, one of the things, we didn't have any predictive analytics. And I went with a little company called Clinicast. Uh, it's a couple guys that were Yale PhDs and ended up spending four or five years at Kaiser and then uh, came up with their own analytic system. And you know, talking to them, it's, it's pretty cool. And we're running the entire thing on uh, EMR data. I despise uh, payer data. It's late and it's almost always wrong. Uh, well, why are we running? And one of the reasons that it's done is because it's typically between so many systems. You know, my strong suggestion for a uh, for you folks is if you're considering something like this, focus on the clinical data you've got because you've got so much better predictive tools internally based on the data that you have. Why mess around with a bunch of other stuff? Palliation. Uh, obviously patient management and palliation go hand in hand. We had a couple of docs and had some uh, palliation nurses. Uh, they did a pretty good job. Uh, we've expanded this dramatically and integrated it with our care management. Um, this is kind of our simplistic view of palliation. One of the things that we did, uh, we kicked off a program, a CMMI program, uh, where they're paying 400 bucks to our local hospice uh, per month for six months prior to death for, a, for our cancer patients. Uh, one of the things that we felt strongly was that the transition to hospice was extraordinarily difficult and very traumatic. 
and I wanted to have a transition that which was not as traumatic, which was easier and smoother, and which was done over a period of time. And with this local hospice, these these gals do a terrific job. They really do. And uh, so we've been very happy with that. I put this slide in. I don't know if you guys have seen something this slide before, but this is really why that hospice program matters. This data is a little old, but it's big data. It's almost 30,000 patients. And this is end-of-life care in oncology, and this is inpatient care in the last month of life. So you can see if we're not managing that, we're not really doing a very good job at addressing costs uh, for ca cancer patients. Uh, I thought I'd give you, close to the end, a little rundown on our systems. This is uh, our system. It's a kind of a standard uh, integrated system. We have uh, a variant EMR uh, centricity and a whole bunch of other stuff hooked to it. But what's important is that the red circles, I'm doing everything that we talked about with those red circles, <coughs> and not one of them has a physical presence on our, on, at our plant. Every one of them is cloud-based. I thought I'd finish up the talk with a little bit of insight, uh, because I get this done in Nashville, and it's hard to come by. This is what the uh, prior authorization companies are planning to do to us if we don't do this first. Uh, they plan to get into the oncology market. It is a market they have not been in to a large degree. Uh, this is their view of what they want to do in radiation therapy. This is their view of what they want to do in medical oncology. They want to be in all adult cancers. They want to be in total protocol management. <coughs> And uh, they want to have good compliance reporting. And this is their view of a workflow. Imagine what that will do to our systems if we have to incorporate that. So from our perspective, I think we want to do everything in our power not to end up in that mess, if we can help it. Summary slide, uh, value-based cancer care for us is really best practices. We're into transparency, adherence, and auditability. Uh, Patient-centered care is about value delivery. Uh, communications of expected outcomes and risks, care plans, pathways. We're communicating with our payer partners. We're communicating with our patients. We're communicating with each other. Costs. We tell the patient, we give them a cost up front of what it's going to cost for our services. Uh, we want folks making informed choices, and hopefully the care plans do a good job at that. And uh, we're building the four pillars. And that's who I used. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. I uh, hope you enjoyed the lunch. And uh, if anybody's got any questions, please. Yes, Jeff. Thank you, Wes. Um, you referenced using the oncology You know, VIA is starting to incorporate them. They're getting very aggressive about surgical and radiation pathways. 
I know uh, Care Plus from McKesson is doing it as well. So if you're interested, you know, I'd run through the list and see who's got uh, the best offering. But you know, we went with VIA because uh, radiation oncology is important to us, but it's not the center of our business. So uh, they've got some, and they're getting more. I was curious about when when do you communicate costs to the patient? What you know, there's is it at the time when they first get a diagnosis? We have to have the pathway done. You know, we have to know, have a pretty good estimate of what drugs we're going to use and what our span of care is going to be. Okay. Is it going to include the radiation oncology or not? And when that's done, we actually have a tool that, you know, we just put in the pathway and it spits out the cost of the patient and here you go. Okay. So it's, it's pretty handy. Yes? I was just going to build on to that. Is it insurer specifically? Yeah. 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 Has to be. Please. A move of uh, practices in, in, in house or in the hospital, I mean, has that impacted on the end of life care? And is there some, is there hmm. some reason why you want to try to stem the tide there? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I wish, I, and I don't even have a feel for it. I apologize. I don't know what the movement to hospital-based care has done to escalate or de-escalate. I assume that if their care is being provided in the hospital and that they end up in the hospital uh, more frequently and may end up at the hospital at end of life, but I don't have a single bit of data to support that. Mark. Uh, Bob, go ahead. Um, bar disease teams rely on tumor boards. and how, how do tumor boards fit into this kind of approach to um, from our perspective, you know, again, I'm just talking about what we're doing. We're focused on the medical oncology portion of it. And so I think if you were to sit down on a tumor board and you're discussing a case, you have a pretty good feel for what the span of uh, recommended pathways are. And they do discuss, uh, obviously, in, in, in depth, uh, comorbidities, uh, genetic uh, signatures, uh, biomarkers. <clears throat> so I think that you probably would want to know what the alternatives were before you sat down to discuss the case. But I think you could tailor, you could use the, the capabilities of the pathway system to address the specifics of the other specialties and, you know, in the design of the medical care. Um, clearly there's a lot of cost savings and care improvements that can occur through um, focusing on medical oncology. But really, um, the big costs in cancer care and the big difference in cancer care seems to me to be around integration of different modalities. And both surgery and radiation oncology have associated with them very big tickets. Um, they're expensive and they're complicated. And um, I'm just wondering, if I were an insurance company, I would see sort of uh, streamlining the OR, streamlining enhancing medical oncology, and sort of streamlining radiation oncology as interesting little fine-tuning pieces. But the real value would be in 
improving the integration of care and the sort of organization of care. Right. And I think the whole idea of measuring outcomes, I mean, the most fundamental outcome would be disease-free survival. And medical oncology is just one piece of right. that puzzle. And uh, oftentimes, we're faced with the reality we don't control surgery or radiation oncology that occurs in the community. We take care of medical oncology hmm. for those patients. And so how can we be responsible for outcomes? Um, now, when a patient comes to us and we provide hmm. all of the care, um, it's a little different responsibility. So do you have any sense of what the big vision is going forward um, uh, to basically come up with a bundle that's the cost of care, which would include all of those modalities, and the outcome could only be measured with all of those modalities. We participate pretty aggressively with our referral partners in data sharing around uh, outcome measurements. And we're getting a lot more aggressive uh, since I've been there in terms of data sharing. It's a huge part of who we are because we have to have those outcome measures. I, I got it and I agree. One of the things that we found is we get very good cost data on total cost of care from our insurance par payer partners. And I don't know if you folks get that here or not. We do. But we get detail uh, by payer, by cancer type, for how much a cancer patient costs on average per year by different types of cancer. Uh, and of course, they divide, the payers obviously divide them up as to how they look at the, uh, their worlds, the different types of payment plans, particularly around drugs. But uh, and what does a cancer patient cost per year in this environment? I'm just curious. Well, it varies a lot depending on. But I mean, your average cancer patient in their first year of, of therapy. With drugs? With drugs, yeah. Total cost of care. Because our Blue Cross Blue Shield patients uh, who have full drug benefits cost about 133,000, and ours that don't cost about 125,000. Uh, and our Medicaid patients are about ten, fifteen thousand dollars less, but not materially less. Surprisingly, it's not so much of the cost is in uh, the drugs. It sounds like we're in that ballpark. Yeah. And you know we monitor that stuff pretty closely with the uh, with our payer partners. And one of the things they're interested in the oncology ACO with us, and we've got two of them uh, kicked off. One of them with our Medicaid patients, and one with our Medicare Advantage patients, is around uh, shared savings, where we're doing the management. Do you are yours specialized oncology practices? In other words, do the people who take care of medical oncology needs of a thoracic a lung cancer patient, um, are they the same people that take care of a leukemic? No. No, we, we have separate uh, hemo uh, so, dogs. Um, are you able to exert any influence on these hospital partners who say, look, um, we want to have colon cancer specialists, but you know, when there's not a case of colon cancer, they're general surgeons, and they also 
have to do appendix, <coughs> and, um, whatever. Right. Um, uh, is there an expectation that the hospital will provide specialized surgical care? And I would offer specialized radiation oncology care uh, as a measure of being a good partner, or are you just stuck with whatever product they want to provide for you? To date, we've been stuck. And to date, we really haven't been monitoring that type of thing. Uh, going forward, it's going to be a lot more important to us because, uh, you know, within our market, we've got, uh, we can move patients around. You know, there's no reason for a physician that's at the downtown Ascension facility not to be at uh, Midtown if they have the right uh, type of surgeon. And we have it within the environment, you know. I mean, it, it, it's almost impossible to make a hospital that doesn't have learners in it, um, interns, residents, fellows, um, as efficient as a hospital that does not have right. learners. And I would assume it's the same thing in a hospital-based practice like yours. Right. Um, who carries the cost of those learners? Your models, you know, in your in vision, our market. Well, in your vision of the costs and the payment schedules going forward. You know, I, I think the there are two costs associated with the learners, direct and indirect. And the direct costs are pretty easy to address. The indirect, which is what I think you're getting at, Mark, is you know the inefficiencies associated with spending the time with people and uh, having people knocking around and the confusion that's associated with it. And, uh, you know, our model doesn't address it. I'll be straightforward. Well, I think the indirect costs are pretty significant, too, because the, the extra time isn't time just occurring in a vacuum. It's occurring in a hospital building with all the associated costs of life. Oh, I, I, I think, I, I think the, the extra time is where all the cost is, really. Yeah. You know, the, co the direct cost of these uh, uh, well, the cost trainees of is, is, and the cost of the trainees right. is also a significant cost. But the, in, the, the indirect cost, you know, uh, putting up, trying to design efficient care delivery systems that includes training uh, at the same time over multiple year periods is really hard. We, and we don't have anything like it. Do you know anyone around the country who's thinking about this? Mayo. You know, I think they're the guys that do it best. It would be interesting to learn how they're thinking about that. All right. Any other pressing questions? Wes will be here for a little bit longer. And thank you all for coming. Thanks, everybody.